we're going to be looking at this morning is the Word's testimony of itself, God's Word's testimony of itself. And hopefully uh, this will be motivating to us, this will be helpful to us as we sit down and we, we engage with God over His Word in the morning. Uh, this is a Psalm of David, and we're going to look at what the Word says about itself. Uh, David starts by uh, giving praise and giving thanksgiving. We're going to put our focus at the end of verse 2, but we have to start in verse 1 so we can see where David's going with this. Uh, David writes, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all of your name. David is saying in verse 1 that that God is worthy of thanks, and he's saying that God is worthy of praise. Utmost thanks, utmost praise. He's ready to give those at all times. He's ready to give those in all context. Uh, then he mentions in verse 2, God's loving kindness. That's God's covenant, God's commitment to his people. He mentions that, and, and Israel can relish in God's loving kindness to them. The Jew understood much better than we do what, the, what God's loving kindness was about because it was specifically for them. All of that is contained in God's word. When God expressed his covenant to his people, he gave it to them in his word. And then David says, you have magnified your word according to all your name. So what David does is he takes God's word and he recognizes and he agrees with God that God has taken his word and he has put it on the same level as his name. His name is Yahweh. His name is I am the I am. I am the one who exists. And so what David acknowledges about God's word is that God's word has the same place. It has the same status as God's very name itself. That should be helpful to us when we sit down with our Bibles. It's helpful to frame our thoughts and our ideas and our attention on God's word that what we're interacting with, what we're dealing with, is nothing short of the same status of God's name itself. So that's one thing I want to help us to do, is, is um, think carefully about God's word and the status that it has when we sit down and we engage with it. And so that's one way that I want us to think carefully about our time alone with the Lord, is just thinking about the actual status of God's word and what that means and where that sits for us. Um, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at what Old Testament Israel did with that word and the status that it had and what God said about that. And we're going to look at the usefulness of God's word and what it really does. And again, this should help us when we, we're getting ready to read our Bibles. We're sitting down and we want to get our thoughts correct about all of this. Uh, the author starts writing at the beginning of chapter 4, and he's got a couple of ideas that are going on here. One, he has the idea of Sabbath rest, uh, that the, the true... Old Testament follower of Christ was one who understood that there was a rest in God himself and that rest came from knowing um, that God's work of, of God's forgiving work was was accomplished by trust in God looking forward to a Messiah it wasn't accomplished by anything good on themselves they needed to be obedient and they needed to look forward to uh, the Messiah but then he talks about how Israel was obedient uh, disobedient rather they were disobedient, and God said that those who were disobedient would not be able to enter into his rest. Get down to verse 12, and we understand what it is that the word itself can do, the very thing that much of Old Testament Israel set aside. 
Verse 12, the word of God is living, and it's active, it's sharp, and it judges. God's word is alive. It's, it's alive. It's not something that's spiritually dead like every other writing is. Uh, God's word is God-breathed, so it's alive. And it's active. It's able to work in the life of those that engage with it. And then it penetrates. It's, it's piercing. It's penetrating. It enters deep into the soul. It divides a man at his inmost parts of who he is. And lastly, it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. So when we're sitting there and we're getting ready to read our Bibles, we need to, to remember and agree with God, this is what your word does. Your word is, is living. I'm interacting with a living thing. I'm interacting with something that's very active in my life. I'm interacting with something that penetrates deep into who I am. It speaks to me at a heart level. And I'm interacting with something that, that judges me. It, it puts on display what is actually right when I put myself next to God's word. It helps me measure myself correctly and rightly. So that's another thing that's going to be helpful to us when we, we sit down to read our Bible is to remember what it is that God's word does. And uh, so that's really helpful as well. A third thing I want us to, to think about carefully about God's word is when we think about God's word is what the disposition of the believer should be towards God's word. And for that, I want us to turn to Isaiah 66. And this, again, is something that's very helpful to us when we sit down with our Bibles in the morning and we want to think clearly about what it is that um, what should be our disposition towards God's word. And God starts in verse one of Isaiah 66 by explaining his magnitude, his greatness. And he does that, and he puts in contrast to himself, man, and his littleness. He says, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. So you have the creator God residing in heaven, and the earth is his footstool. He says, where is a place that I may rest? Before that, he says, where is a house that you can build for me? There is nothing that we can do to, to add to God, to contribute to God, to aid him. He says, my hand made all these things. So we have this idea that God is preeminent, God is majestic, God is great. Uh, he doesn't need anything from us. But verse two is really helpful. It tells us the kind of person that God looks towards. He said, to this one I look. And again, this is the God who doesn't need us. He doesn't need us at all. He says, I look to this one, to him who is humble and who is contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So when we sit down in the morning and we, we open up our Bibles, we want to be men who are sober and we are, are fearful of God as we read his word. We, we look at his word carefully. We look at it with the right kind of reverence that we need when we sit down and we engage with him because that is the one on whom God looks. And God looks to the one who sits down with his word and says, this is authoritative over me. I need to submit myself to this. I need to do it joyfully, trustingly, lovingly in God. So those are are three different ways that we can help ourselves see rightly about what, what God's word should be in our mind when we sit down and engage. And I want to look at one more passage to help us uh, think rightly about God's word. And I want us to, to look at the words of Jesus himself. For that, we want to turn to John 17. This is the high priestly prayer. This is where Jesus is praying for three different groups of people. This is the night before his arrest. He knows exactly what is going to take place. He starts in the beginning of of the chapter, the first four or five verses, he's praying for himself. And he's praying that God would glorify him with the same glory he had with the Father uh, back in heaven before he, he entered into this world. 
And then he spends the next several verses in verses six and following praying for the disciples because he knows what's coming for them. And he knows that he's going to leave them. He sees that in, in verse 12. He says, while I was there with them, I was keeping them in your name. So he was assisting them. He was aiding them. He was holding them. He was keeping them. He was guarding them. Not one of them perished except for Judas. Then he turns the corner in verse 13. He says, but now I'm coming to you. So he's leaving this world. The only point of security, the only point of authority that the disciples ever had was Christ himself. And he's leaving. So he knows it's going to be really hard for them. He says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. So there's this opposition to the message. There's the religious leadership, the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, the teachers of the law. They all hate the message that the disciples now have because Christ gave it to them. So this is a very difficult, this is a very hostile environment they're in. They have challenges at every turn. And Christ knows that the one thing that they need is they need sanctification through his word and in his word. And we see that in verse 17. So this is what our Savior says. He says, sanctify them, the disciples, and by extension, he's praying for us as well. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the desire of Christ is that his disciples know the word that he gave to them and that they remain in that word, they keep that word, and they stay faithful to that word, and they use that word to navigate whatever circumstances uh, the Lord has ordained for them and by extension that he's ordained for us. So I hope that that's encouraging for us as we sit down and we think about our time in the word and maybe that helps us prepare our hearts for God's word. We want to be thinking carefully about the status that God's word has, that, that he says it has. It, it has an equivalent status as his name. We want to be thinking about how the word penetrates us and it judges us, it describes us. We want to be thinking about how God's favor is on the one and God looks to the one who is humble underneath his word and who trembles at his word. And we want to keep in mind that, that God gave us his word so that we could study it, we could know it, we could remain in it, and we could be sanctified by it. So I hope that's encouraging to you guys. I hope that it, it gives you some kind of guidance or encouragement for how you might help yourself prepare for your time in the word as you sit down and read. There's plenty more verses like these. There's others. If you already have a system that works, that helps you prepare your heart well, time with the word praise God keep doing whatever it is that that helps you engage with God well if you're having some kind of trouble getting with the word and, and entering in all right let me uh pray and we'll jump into God's word God thank you for uh, this time this morning that you've graciously given to us uh, thanks for the opportunity to be together and to be looking over your word once again we can never uh, hear too much truth or be impacted too deeply by your word. Pray that you would bless the time. And as we look at what First Timothy 3 says, even Paul's words to men teaching error uh, in the church, that it would be instructive for us as well. And we ask all these things relying on your spirit to bring God's word to our hearts and in Christ's name. Amen. All right. This morning, uh, we're going to be talking about your heart and your doctrine, the relationship between those things. Uh, there was an article that appeared in 2016 
on the Desiring God website, I remember uh, finding this article through someone who posted it online, someone that I knew, uh, and the article just in this post on Facebook was receiving lots of praise from men that I know. And I remember looking at, the, well, the title caught my attention. The title was Seven Things to Do After You Look at Pornography. Seven Things to Do After You Look at Pornography. So I was, I was interested uh, in what the article said. Um, looked at, at this article, and really the article is a mixture of biblical-sounding counsel with lots of psychological mumbo-jumbo. Uh, one of the, the things that the author encouraged, I just read a, a few things, some of the unbiblical advice. <clears throat> he encouraged his readers to uh, fight self-hatred, talked about not having a, um, a hatred for self, which is actually the opposite of what Jesus counsels. Uh, he actually commends the one who hates his own life um, and what he has made of his life and his sin. Uh, he even, this man even called the regret, the immediate regret that is often felt by those who indulge in sexual immorality. He called that immediate regret after the sin clarity he called that clarity and I just thought that is a such a bizarre uh, way to think about the the knee-jerk regret that can be felt by even unbelievers after indulging in sexual immorality and interestingly in that in that section uh, where he's counseling his readers to use your clarity for good he even cites Judas and so it's just incredibly ironic to call the regret after sin clarity uh, when the very example that he used was a man who did not repent but went and killed himself uh, because he refused to uh, respond in a biblical way to his own sin. That was in 2016. That article was posted March 9th. I remember interacting with some of the men online uh, about that very article uh, and they kind of I pointed out that the article just some of the unbiblical things that were mentioned uh, kind of in a streamlined way walk through some text like hey here's what scripture actually says here's what uh, Paul Maxwell is counseling his readers here's why this is a bad way to think about trying to recover from uh, indulging in pornography usage and I remember thinking at the time and even saying that the article seems like it's written by someone who has not actually won the battle against sexual immorality but thinks he has advice to offer others that's just the way it seemed I didn't I don't know the writer of the article but I remember mentioning that's the perception that I have um, this guy sounds like he hasn't won the battle himself and yet he's got a platform uh, through a popular Christian website 
to dispense counsel to others and, and teach others. Five years later, that same author publicly denounced the faith. Came out as uh, a man who did not trust Jesus. He had, you know, and, and even that was just silly, the way he used his social media platforms to talk about why he walked away from the faith and then went on to, uh, you know, ridicule Christianity and, and all those kinds of things. And I felt like, man, this is, this is so sad. If I could have just said, you know, five years ago, that guy is an, is, is an unbeliever. Don't take his counsel. Uh, clearly, we don't have that kind of insight into the future. But there was enough warning signs back then just from the article. Uh, and this, this man was listed on the Desiring website as a regular contributor. Uh, to to their blog. Uh, if you go in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1, and I was teaching 1 Timothy at the time, that's perhaps why I was more acutely aware of this. But Paul is talking in 1 Timothy to Timothy, telling him what to do with men like the author of this article. Men who are teachers of the church, who are ambitious, confident in what they're teaching, but don't know what they're talking about. Look at 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, Paul says to Timothy, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. This passage comes before any other instruction that Paul actually gives Timothy. You'll just notice if you look at the first verse in chapter 2, chapter 2 verse 1 begins with the words, first of all then, but we're two chapters in. That's an odd way to begin a, a letter, first of all, when you've already spent a chapter writing. You know, these are, the, these are Paul's first of all instructions because he's instructing the church uh, or instructing Timothy for the sake of the church. And this is his uh, first point of instruction. But before he can get there, He's actually got to spend an entire chapter telling Timothy what to do with false teachers. And so everything in chapter one has its connection to this group of men in the church who are teaching error. And so here Paul's just demonstrating for us that principally, if false teaching is allowed to remain in the church, 
then all of the other good instruction that might come is going to be undone. So Paul's, Paul's uh, prelude, if you will, to his first order of business is to deal with the men teaching error. They don't get their own Sunday school class. They don't get their own small group and just relegate the wrong teaching to that. No, the false teaching has to be ended so that everything else the church is supposed to do can actually bear fruit in the lives of the members. What's riding on this, and this is just again to, to consider the significance of the passage that we'll look at, if you just fast forward to chapter 3, verse 14, Paul tells us why he's written everything that he's written. I am writing these things to you, chapter 3, verse 14, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So Paul, knowing that delays happen, he's got plans to go to Timothy soon, but just in case he's delayed somehow, just in case he's prevented in God's providence from reaching Timothy soon, the actual instructions that he has for Timothy can't wait. Even if Paul himself is delayed, the instructions can't be delayed. And so Paul needs Timothy to be clear about what every member of the church is supposed to be doing. This is about, according to verse 15, how one, anyone, ought to conduct himself in the household of God. The members of God's household or God's family must know how to conduct themselves. And so it's Timothy's job as the pastor. Uh, this would have been, according to chapter 5, there are other elders with Timothy. And so as the shepherds of the church, they need to be well aware of what every member of the church is supposed to be doing so that they can instruct them how to live godly, how the family of God ought to carry itself. And in this family of God, this is according to verse 15 again, chapter 3, the church of the living God. This household or family of God is the church. This is the church of the living God. That's in contrast to every other uh, group of people associated with a God of the day, every other idol that is not living. This is the one organism the one family associated with the living God. And so this household, by conducting itself in the way that it ought to, demonstrates that its God lives, right? The God of the church is the only true God, the only God who is alive, who can hear, who speaks, who acts and works in the world. And so by virtue of the church doing what it's supposed to be doing, every member properly in line living under God's authority, it proves that God is the living God and it upholds God's truth. That's how verse 15 ends, the pillar and support of the truth. This is what the church is. So the church has a role, a crucial role, in representing God in the world and in upholding God's truth in the world. It's the pillar or support, the structure that holds up God's truth as true before the watching world. No other group of people does this in the world. No campus ministry has God's authority to do this. God hasn't commissioned campus ministries, 
biblical counseling organizations, uh, parachurch ministries, missions boards, or even seminaries outside a local church to do this very thing. This is the church's job to represent God in the world and to uphold God's truth. So there is much writing on the proper working of God's church, which is why the first thing that Paul does before he even gets to the first order of business is to instruct Timothy regarding the men teaching error in Ephesus. This letter personally written to Timothy, just like we're doing now, reading it to all the church, it would have been shortly after Timothy received it and read it himself, read before all the church. So just imagine the Apostle Paul writing his own personal letter to Timothy, who's a young man, according to chapter 4, verse 12. There's a, there's a potential or even a, a reality that Timothy's being uh, looked down on because of his youth, his age. And Paul's saying that's not an impediment to you shepherding the church. Just make sure that you're, you're an example even in your young age. And so as this letter was read to the entire church, this would have been heard by everyone as Paul's words to Timothy. So the, the false teachers in the church would have heard what Paul told Timothy to do with them. Men in the church would have heard the Apostle Paul's words to Timothy to say, teach men this. Women would have heard Paul say to Timothy, don't let women teach, but they're to learn in all submissiveness, right? Uh, deacons would have heard Paul's words to Timothy. Elders would have heard Paul's words to Timothy. Those who were tempted to walk away from the faith would have heard Paul's words to Timothy to what to do about that. Widows in the church, according to chapter 5, would have heard Paul's words to Timothy. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men would have heard Paul's words to Timothy specifically for what to teach them. Slaves in Ephesus in the church would have heard Paul's words to Timothy for what they're supposed to be taught. And even those who were wealthy in the church would have heard Paul's personal instructions to Timothy for what Timothy was supposed to be telling to them. So this would have given Timothy the confidence before the entire church to take Paul's words and to confidently shepherd the church to really do one thing that we find in verse 5. To shepherd the church to practice what I'm calling piety-produced love. Piety-produced love. This is the goal of Paul and Timothy's instruction, according to chapter 1, verse 5. To love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What's being described there is a godly or pious inner life. And the goal of that is not just to be holy for the sake of being holy, but to step into the lives of other people, namely in the household of God, and practice love. To love one another, to love others, to love God, all of those things would have been included, but the, the thrust of the letter seems to be primarily with the members of the church. So these five urgent instructions for false teachers, just like it would have been when this letter was read in Ephesus for the first time and beyond, Every, just think about everybody in Ephesus hearing Timothy stand up and read Paul's letter to him. And the first thing he says is, I left you in Ephesus 
so that you would instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine or other doctrine. And you know there's got to be somebody standing next to the guy who's been confronted by Timothy already going, certain men? I think he's talking about you. What you've been teaching our small group or whatever, right? What you've been teaching the church, Timothy told you. And now Paul, he's got Paul's backing. And so this would have been instructive for the entire church, not just the men teaching error. And so we get to benefit in much the same way being instructed by these specific instructions to false teachers. So we've got five things to consider as we discuss the relationship between your heart and your doctrine. This passage becomes illustrative for us of what happens when someone pursues doctrinal, uh, a robust doctrine, they pursue doctrinal clarity without a purity of heart. Because that's exactly what was happening among these men teaching error. So the first instruction that Paul gives that's also instructive for us is number one on your outline to abandon other teaching. Abandon other teaching. He says that in verse three, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine. Um, the, the translation, if it says strange doctrine in, in, your, uh, in your translation is somewhat unfortunate because the, the word there is uh, hetero. It's a, a prefix added to the word for teaching. And hetero, we know means other. And so this is the way that it should be taken. Is It's not strange like bizarre doctrine. I mean, it could be bizarre doctrine, like people who are teaching in our day, even in the church, you know, that the earth is flat. That's strange, right? But it's not like, what, what's on Paul's mind is not those kinds of teachings, just bizarre things that come out of left field, conspiracy theories, things that can't be proven necessarily. He's just talking about things that are other doctrine, not something other than what the apostles handed down, right? They could make it onto a popular Christian website. They're not so bizarre that they're easy to spot. They might be subtle error, but the point is it's teaching that the apostles do, do not, did not affirm. The apostles didn't affirm it in the New Testament. The prophets in the New Testament didn't affirm it. And the prophets who wrote in the Old Testament did not affirm what's being taught in Ephesus. He gives further uh, clarification or insight into what, what must have actually been taught. Because he goes on in verse 4 and says, hey, don't teach strange doctrines. So that's the public proclamation of what's going forth in the church. But he also says, verse 4, not only to not teach these things, but to not pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. So the substance of what these men are latching onto is the really the same thing that they're giving their attention to, myths and endless genealogies. So the first thing that the false teachers are instructed with that's instructive for us is to abandon other teaching. And this is just things that aren't biblical. 
the, the teachers that have a platform through blogs, through podcasts, through their own uh, teaching ministry online, perhaps, like we have instantaneous access to them in our day, right? They live in your pocket, the men teaching error. And so, you know, you almost envy uh, Timothy as a pastor to say, well, at least he knows where they are. They're in the church and they've got a platform. He can just say, you're not teaching this Sunday, right? We just don't have that same luxury in our day. So everybody, every man in this room, upon leaving this room, can pull pull out their phone and find a wide array of teachers through podcasts, through blogs, etc. You have to be careful that you're not latching on to men who teach error. Something just sub-biblical, right? Something that's just not exactly biblical. We're not talking about just people who are holding to the faith and yet differ on a point of doctrine. I want to be clear. Right? You take a, a man like uh, R.C. Sproul, for example. R.C. Sproul, uh, a great biblical teacher, has done great work and benefited the church immensely in his lifetime. He did, and his resources are still available. Uh, pick up his book on election, uh, his book on the Holy Spirit. Those things are great. We might differ with him at our church on eschatology, the way he does apologetics, and some other points of doctrine. But for the most part, he's a trustworthy teacher, godly man who faithfully taught God's word for, for decades. That's not exactly what we're talking about. Okay, I'm not in, intending to indict R.C. Sproul because he differs on some, some points of doctrine. Uh, we're talking about men who have given their attention to things. Just look again at verse 4. Because their teaching results in speculation. It gives rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And we'll talk about what that is exactly. This doesn't produce godliness. It actually majors on speculative theology. And that's the second point. Abandon other teachings and ignore speculative theology. Uh, These are theological musings that can't be proven or use the Bible to say things that aren't actually in the text. And we have lots of men that do that. Right? They use the Bible to say things that aren't actually in the text. They kind of hover over the text. They talk about the text. They use biblical-sounding phrases to say something unbiblical. Uh, just one example that comes to mind where this is done, the, image, uh, the doctrine of the image of God in our day is, is sort of that for a lot of teachers. Every Christian loves the image of God doctrine, the, the doctrine that says man was created in the beginning in the image of God, so he possesses a unique place among all of God's created things, cre- creatures, 
man was the only being in creation created in the image of God. And, and that has to do with, we were talking about this last night uh, after 414, the image of God doctrine has to do with man's unique place as a ruler who represents God's world or God's character in creation. No other created thing was given dominion over creation to image God, to represent God's character. And as he exercised authority over creation to demonstrate in that ruling what God is like. That was, that's what Adam was doing in the garden uh, along with Eve, right? Together they imaged God as they were in relationship to each other subduing creation uh, with grace and kindness and patience and all other kinds of godly characteristics found originated in God himself. That doctrine uh, has been used to obligate men and women, Christians, to think about uh, human dignity and to do things that actually aren't biblical. So image of God, because man is dignified, then the church needs to go uh, ensure that everyone in its community has adequate access to health care. Because of the image of God doctrine? That's the church's job? Or because of the image of God doctrine and men have been created with inherent dignity, then churches need to ensure that the sidewalks, I kid you not, this is, I read this, I heard this recently, a man said that sidewalks in minority communities need to be widened. That's the church's job or to make sure that uh, the public transportation runs proportionately through white communities and minority communities. And unless the church is doing that, then whatever gospel it's teaching is not worth hearing. Because of the image of God doctrine, right? Men who are in Paul's scope that he's telling Timothy to stop teaching other doctrine and to stop paying attention to myths and endless genealogies, they're doing this with the Bible. And we know this because he says in verse 4 that they've given themselves to what he calls endless genealogies. But then in verse 7, he says that these men are wanting to be teachers of the what? What does it say? The law. So they do have their Bibles open. And this is most likely where they're getting the genealogies. You've come across these in your reading plans, have you not? And they've probably been a stumbling block for you. Uh, the genealogies, and these were crucial to Israel, who's looking forward to the seed promise. And so they are documenting and really tracing out genealogically the course of God's promises. And it's important for other reasons, right? They're looking forward to a Messiah. So all of those genealogies for the various tribes of Israel need to be documented. This is where they're coming from. The Levitical priesthood still stands. The tribe of Judah, through which the Messiah is going to come. Israel said, Jacob said long ago. Here's the, the path that that's coming through. Um, and as Israel was given the law, the Pentateuch by Moses, the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
he's actually tracing out as he records Noah's lineage, Noah's descendants, and Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He's tracing out where the other nations are coming from that they're about to go destroy. When he documents what happened, the you know Ham's um, perverse and shameful treatment of Noah, and then Noah's curse on the not Ham, but the descendants of Ham, uh, the descendants of Canaan. Why is that important? Why do we trace out the genealogies? Well, if you went back to Genesis and read uh, in chapter eight and nine and ten uh, the the account of what happened with Noah's sons, that's instructive for Israel going into the land saying, hey, you're about to bring about the slaughter of many nations. That started way back when, when Noah cursed Canaan. And so all the descendants, you need to go carry out God's judgment prophesied by Noah. So the genealogies were important. These men, these men teaching error, notice the genealogies are called what in verse 4? Endless. Moses actually had an end in mind with the genealogies, not just in a purpose he wrote them, but they actually did have an end. You just trace them out, boom, and then you move on to the, to the next scene, the next you know, thing in the law. These men, they were, they were endless. And so they just went on and on and on about the genealogies, even making up fables. It says myths in verse 4. So you can just imagine the, the amount of space given. If, somebody, if, if there's a man in the congregation who's taken away with these things, he doesn't actually want to teach and focus on what's going to purify the life, but he's more interested in things that give him his own intelligence, perhaps a platform in the church, because he's obsessed with those things. So he makes up stories about and just speculates about these characters that actually have an end and a purpose in sight. John Calvin said about these, uh, about this very thing, that Paul calls them endless because vain curiosity has no limit, but continually falls from labyrinth to labyrinth. The person who isn't interested in doctrine that's going to purify his life is, is never going to have an end in sight to what he can emphasize and focus on in his teaching. And so that's what was happening in, in Ephesus. We need to just be careful and stay away from those kinds of teachings. They might tickle the ear. They might sound interesting at first. They might raise questions that you never thought of. And Paul's telling us before we even hear those questions that we think, oh man, that is interesting, and then get taken away with it, don't even pay attention to it. If it's in the white spaces in your Bible, then let it stay there, in the white spaces. God doesn't intend for you to know. Cling to the actual words of Scripture and the intention that they're supposed to have, the, the benefit that they're supposed to have in your life. And so this leads us to the third point, uh, the, the third thing that we need to receive instruction from, and that's keep true piety. 
That's actually what was wrong with these teachers in Ephesus. They were not keeping true piety. Is that how that reads on your, on your outline, by the way? Is that the same as what you guys have? What's the third point? Embrace God's stewardship. Embrace God's stewardship. I'm looking at old notes. Embrace God's stewardship. That, that is the, uh, the point. He calls this third point in verse 4, furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. The stewardship of God, which is, by, which is by faith. So embracing God's stewardship is pursuing a pious life, pursuing love from a pious life. Because that's the very thing, that's the contrast in verse 5, that Paul says our instruction, speaking of him and Timothy's instruction, does accomplish. Okay? So the, the result of the false teacher's teaching was speculation, according to verse 4, rather than furthering, or rather than, literally, rather than the administration of God, which is by faith. So rather than accomplishing God's administration, or stewardship is your word there, the administration, the stewardship, this is what God has given those who believe him to be about and do. So it's a stewardship of those who believe. What is that stewardship? Well, that's why we get verse 5. Well, the goal of our instruction is not speculation. The goal of our instruction is the administration of God, which is by faith. Well, what is that? Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Okay, you see that? Does that make sense? Do you have any questions about or clarification needed about why I'm calling this the embracing God's stewardship? God's stewardship is what you've been given by God to be about as a Christian. Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so you get this one goal, love, from three departure points. Your love for God, for others, but again, I think the, the focus of the letter seems to be love in the family of God, in this household of God, the church. Your goal is to love one another, but not just any old kind of love. You can't go love the church well while you ignore your inner life and don't keep your heart pure. This is love that comes from a pure heart and also a good conscience and also a sincere faith. So just taking these one at a time, a pure heart, a pure heart. Just notice God's aim is love from a pure heart. It is possible to maintain a pure heart. To assume that purity of heart is not possible is actually not believing God here and what he has given us to do. He, Paul doesn't have absolute perfection in mind. He doesn't say love from a perfect heart or a heart free from any and all sin ever, but it's a pure heart. 
it's a heart that's constantly uh, checked. It's constantly brought back into alignment with God's truth. This is control central. Everything that you are, every word you speak, every thought you think, every conviction you hold, every desire you have, and everything you're motivated by, this all comes from what Paul calls the heart. The heart. That's your inner life. And Paul says it needs to be pure so that you can love which is the goal of all biblical instruction so to purify the heart gives us a good footing from which to step into the lives of others and practice godly love in addition to a pure heart a heart that's cleansed from defilement is also a good conscience a good conscience uh, this speaks to the uprightness of the conscience, that the conscience is properly informed and it's properly working. It's still good. Right? It's not spoiled. It's not seared. But the conscience actually still works. He, he talks about in another section in chapter 4, men whose conscience has been seared as with a branding iron Again, a reference to the teachers who lead others astray in the church because their consciences are not maintained and kept in a profitable state. So the heart has to be kept pure. The conscience has to be maintained as good and properly working so that all of the decisions you make come from a, a conscience that's sensitive to God's truth, sensitive to God's standard. And you can actually make decisions and when you discern between good and evil because you've spent time maintaining or improving your own conscience. Even uh, to just think about the, the person who has a good conscience, the result of having a good conscience is that you respond when you're pricked in your conscience. When your conscience tells you and, and goes off like it's supposed to, that warning system, this isn't right, we shouldn't do this, then you actually respond and listen to your conscience. The person who spends enough time shutting his conscience down ignoring his conscience sort of like um, what you might do with your your alarm in the morning you know roll back over and ignore that it's going off or hit the snooze button to tell it to stop right you do that enough times and you end up with a seared conscience so the person who has a good conscience is not in the habit of ignoring it but actually listens and brings his life into alignment with what his conscience is warning him about. And then thirdly, a sincere faith. A sincere faith. This is uh, the exercise of belief that is true or genuine. 
the, the word there is without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. So it's the person who says they believe these things doesn't harbor unbelief, doesn't justify doubt would be one way to think about this. But it's sincere. Um, when, when I'm among the household of God, the things that I claim to believe, I actually continue hold, holding to those things. That's one way to think about a sincere faith. But also the person who has a sincere faith or a faith without hypocrisy actually lives, again, brings their lives into alignment with what they profess. So the life matches the profession. That would be a sincere faith. I say I believe God. I say I love the gospel. I say I believe in the saving and sanctifying power of Christ's blood. Then I'm going to live like it and not live a duplicitous life. Right? The guys in my small group think I'm one way. I come and maybe confess enough sin or mention enough Bible reading for them to think that I'm doing well when actually I'm not I've got this area of my life I don't want anybody to know about that's hypocrisy and that's what Paul is saying undermines our ability to love one another which is the goal of all biblical instruction just notice why the men who were teaching error in Ephesus were teaching this error. It was not because they just didn't know any better. It wasn't the reason they ended up teaching the things that they were teaching and embracing the things that they embraced, paying attention to the myths and endless genealogies. The reason Paul tells us in verse 6, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Or a literal translation would say something like, some men actively straying from these things were passively turned aside to fruitless discussion. The, the idea here is that because they strayed intentionally and purposefully from these things, what are these things a reference to? This is plural. What things? Close. Notice what things, plural things, does he mention in verse 5? They strayed or left what? That's right. Pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. They did not hold to God's stewardship. They ignored what God had given them to do love from a pure heart good conscience sincere faith and from leaving those those things the things associated with a pious inner life pure heart good conscience sincere faith straying from these things they were turned aside to fruitless discussion it's almost like the the active and passive senses here is helpful because the role that they played in their teaching of error was first leaving a pure inner life. And by actively leaving those things, 
the only thing that was left for them to do, the only thing that could happen to them, actually did happen to them. They turned aside to fruitless discussion, or were turned aside. So it's like passively, they just, by actively leading a pure inner life, it almost just happened to them, they found themselves teaching error in fruitless discussion. And that's the point, is that if you don't maintain a pure inner life, then your doctrine does not stand a chance. All of your good doctrine, you can read the historic Christian creeds, you can love Reformed theology, you can hold to all the good tenets, doctrinally speaking, being taught at Grace Bible Church. And if you don't maintain a pure inner life, then all of that good doctrine eventually will not stand the test of time. You will find yourself clinging to what Paul called in verse 3, other teachings, strange doctrines, eventually. The, the reason that these men found themselves teaching other doctrines is because according to verse 6, they strayed from a pure inner life, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. That's the connection between your heart and doctrine. Your doctrine depends on the state of your heart. So if you want to hold to the faith, if you want to persevere in the faith, then that starts with holding to maintaining a pure inner life. If you want to maintain the same orthodoxy that you profess today at the end of your life, you know, in 60, 80 years from now, then how, how do you do that? How do you ensure that you will be orthodox on your deathbed and enter into the kingdom with confidence? You give attention to your inner life today. You embrace God's stewardship for you to love from a pious inner life, to practice piety-produced love. That's how you make sure that you enter into the kingdom one day. It's interesting to think about uh, the amount of time that people used to live uh, closer to the beginning of creation. You get in Genesis 5, those genealogies, uh, the, the record, you know, people living hundreds and hundreds of years. And I know the sins that I struggle with and how I feel them. And you just think godly people like Noah, like Enoch, I mean, they could live hundreds of years and still maintain a pure inner life. You know, I'm just thankful if I can live 80. It's possible. We have to give attention to these things. <clears throat> this is one of the helpful uh, aspects of just the way that we've gone after training men. You get build first, you know, entrance, uh, sort of like a foundational class for all the men in the church. What do we want to give? What do we want to highlight primarily? Your heart your heart, your heart. You need to know what to do with your heart. 
we could study systematic theology and highlight the implications for your heart. You know, trust. That could happen in the trust, and it still does happen in the trust. But just to spend a number of months focusing on how you take God's word, bring it to bear on your heart, your own life at a personal level, and then do the next best thing and focus on the people in your home, in your immediate sphere of influence, and then also in the church and other close spheres close to home, that's the, the proper order in terms of emphasis. And, and Paul's just highlighting that same reality, he's reinforcing that, that same principle. Just to wrap up the, the final couple of things to mention, uh, other points of instruction, temper strong desires. Is that what you have for number four? Temper strong desires. And then number five, gain doctrinal clarity. So just taking those two things together, temper strong desires. Notice in verse seven, these men are wanting to be teachers of the law. They have uh, this ambition about them. Wanting to be teachers of the law. It's not only a pitfall for young men, but it is a unique pitfall for young men. Uh, usually older men have kind of lived their life. They know what they're about. They know what, you know, the, their limitations and what God is going to use them for by later years. Young men don't usually still trying to figure that stuff out. And so ambition is usually a besetting sin in younger men. It just is. So young men, are you aware of that? Do you check your ambition? Are you afraid of fame, popularity, a big platform, those kinds of things that fuel ambition? You should be. Older men, we could use you to just keep eyes on our lives and say, hey, you seem self-promoting or ambitious. Uh, these men were characterized by that kind of ambition. And notice that the ambition went before the character, right? Th these men didn't have the character of teachers because they strayed from these things, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. So the ambition ran out ahead of their character development and it ran out ahead of their knowledge. They wanted to be teachers of the law, were promoting themselves as teachers of the law, even though, Paul says, they lacked the character and even though they did not understand either what they were saying or the matters about which they made confident, made confident assertions. They didn't even have doctrinal clarity, but they wanted to teach the things that they confidently were wrong about. Slow down. And so even here, Paul, we see isn't, he's not discouraging the pursuit of robust study of doctrine. He's actually encouraging it if we were to read the following section, because he goes on and says what the law is good for, and then articulates this profound uh, doctrine of the use of the Old Testament law. Not ironically, it's the same thing as the goal of New Testament teaching in verse 5. It actually is intending to purify the inner life and cause men and women who believe God to live upright lives. 
So certainly gain doctrinal clarity in all of your pursuits of gaining doctrinal clarity, reading lots of Bible, and even taking up good extra biblical books is a, a means of doing that. Emphasize and keep a focus on the sanctifying effect in your own life that these things are supposed to have. You want to read a, a Puritan paperback out from the book table? Great, do that. And don't be proud about it, that you can read the Puritans, and make sure that what the Puritans are actually articulating, you're applying in your own life. Not just to teach others, but in your own life, at the heart level. As we wrap up, just a, a few implications for how to take the principle we're talking about as you think about the relationship between your heart and your doctrine, some implications that this has for us. Uh, I have just three things. First off, confess sin as soon as it becomes known or as soon as you become aware of it. If you want to keep a pure inner life, then we have to be in the habit of doing that. As soon as sin becomes aware, uh, as soon as sin becomes known to you, then confess it. When you sin against your, your family members, go confess sin to them. Don't delay. You uh, realize that you haven't been leading your home as you should, go confess that to your spouse if you're married. You haven't been living with your, your parents or siblings in the way that you should, confess that to them. And don't let sin uh, just sit on your conscience. Actually deal with it. Confess it as sin to the Lord and to the appropriate people that you've sinned against so that you can keep a good conscience, a clear conscience. And number two, go, go a step further and actually invite input from others. This is a little bit different than just waiting to see your sin and then confessing it. This actually welcomes others close to you in your home, in the church, and just says, hey, would you speak into my life? If you see me sinning in some way, would you make, would you make me aware of that? You don't need to be afraid of my response. You don't need to be shy about bringing that to me. I want to know. Because I want to make sure that I can maintain a pure inner life. So would you just speak into my life? Uh, thinking about some of the older guys in the room, when's the last time that you invited uh, a younger man who's less seasoned, uh, knows less doctrine, has heard less sermons, has been in the church less time to say, hey, I still don't have, have it all together. I still have blind spots. Would you speak into my life, please? And then finally, since we know that the goal of, in, of biblical instruction is to purify the inner life so that we can love well, then that just implies that we should prioritize sanctifying biblical instruction. Biblical instruction should have a priority in our lives. Whenever God's words open, your impulse should be, I want to be there. I want to sit under the teaching of God's word, right? That's why you're here this morning. Great. And other times, think about equipping hour. Sundays are full for us now. Equipping hour, main service, evening service. At least the impulse should be, I really want to be there. And maybe you can't always be there, right? 
maybe not every time. Maybe there's something about your season of life or your situation that doesn't allow for an ease to be there every single time God's word is open. And that's okay. It's not sin. But the desire certainly should be, I want to be under God's word whenever it's opened. Uh, And so I think primarily about men with younger families, that can pose a unique challenge, right? I got young kids and feel like I'm only going to get a third of equipping hour if I come because I got to manage my young children. Well, a couple things. One, a third of the word is better than none. And you can train your children to be less of a distraction. It, it, they are trainable, right? Um, when I go home later today, we're going to practice that because our youngest, who is just over a year, is not content sitting in a stroller anymore. And he's noisy, so we're going to practice when we, today at home, blanket time. Here's how you sit on this square fabric and contentedly, quietly play with your toys. And so you can pray for me. Because <laughs> that's going to be a battle. Uh, real quick, uh, well, I'll hang around if you have, if you have any questions about, about any of that. But hopefully that's helpful for you men as you think about uh, your own lives and your own situation, uh, kind of where the Lord has you in this season. All right, we're over time. Let me, let me pray for us and you'll be dismissed. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that empowers us to understand it and apply it properly. I pray for these men that you would make us uh, aware of weaknesses, um, aware of weaknesses in our own lives and in the lives of those around us that we love in this church and that you would equip us to step into each other's lives even as we give attention to our own hearts so that we can love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith in the way that you intend. And pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.